Rob, it's the intro to the intro. What have we got coming up this month on the show? Wow, what a delightful show we've got this month. We are covering a range of fantastic news stories from watches saving people's lives to China scanning people's faces. We've got a story from my CTO all about smoke and heat. We've got a bit of dad tech from me. Congratulations, Jim, once again on being a dad. Uh, we're looking at some hype curve throwback from the 2015 Gartner Hype Cycle. And of course, we've got a fantastic guest, Mr. Hayden Shaughnessy. But not only that, we are, of course, brought to you by Disruption Hub magazine. Visit them at disruptionhub.com. And you can keep up with us on the socials at Alexa underscore stop on Twitter and some other ones somewhere else. In addition, this month, we've got a special sponsor for the show. Do you know what? Rob, do you love WordPress? Jim, I adore WordPress. Do you like doing big things with WordPress and integrating with enterprises and making your WordPress life kind of complex? Yeah, I mean, you know what? If I'm a major organization with global scale, what I really like is to do WordPress incredibly well. Do you want to do it well with some people from Brighton? Brighton is among the best places to do WordPress things. Well, that's great because our friends at Pragmatic, who you can find at pragmatic.agency, have sponsored this month's episode of Alexa Stop. Yes, they have. Thank you so much to the team at Pragmatic for their support. If you need anything built on WordPress and you need it to work properly, speak to the team at Pragmatic. Alexa, stop. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Balls. Well, howdy doody, you're listening to Alexa Stop. My name is Mr. Jim Bowes, and opposite me is Mr. Robert Belgrave. How are you? I am so well, Jim. So well. It feels fantastic to be back in the studio opposite my partner in crime. It's great. I'm, I'm really happy. I would like to say, you know, it feels like it's ages since I've seen you, but I did see you on Saturday. We had a lovely lunch out in the uh, countryside. We did. We had a very delicate fish and chip based lunch, which is not a combination of words I use very often. No, I've not heard you say it before. No, it was lovely. And of course, this is the podcast all about how technology is changing people's life and what on earth is coming up on this month's show. Well, lots of good life-changing technology stories as always. We've got some fantastic news talking a bit about wearable technology, what the big man at Twitter has been up to, some kind of surveillance stuff, and obviously a bit of a China angle for today, which leads nicely into our guest. Indeed, it does. Mr. Hayden Shaughnessy coming up later on in the programme. But before all of that, do you know what it is? Uh, is No, you don't. You don't. Is it? I'll tell you. I'll tell you. What is it? It's the news. It's the news. Oh, yes, it is the news. Of course it is. My favourite segment of the show, normally. And let's see if that's the case today. Well, do you know what? The first story really lives up to that introduction. Do you know what I think it is? I think it's the future we've been promised. Do you really? Tell us a little bit about this story. I hope so. I mean, certainly the future I signed up for. This one sort of circulated on the internet a couple of weeks ago and it really warmed my heart. So there was a guy who, his father was mountain biking in a kind of remote area in the US and he was wearing an Apple watch at the time. So uh, this is free advertising for Apple and their magnificent watches. Anyway, the guy had a pretty bad fall on his mountain bike and ended up hitting his head quite hard uh, and knocking himself completely unconscious. And using a feature that I must admit i consider myself pretty well read on this stuff and I had no idea Apple Watches could do this he had a feature enabled on his watch that detects a fall and then auto dials 911 as is the case in America auto dials the ambulance sends them his location based on GPS and the EMS which is like the paramedics turned up and picked him up and he was in the hospital within 30 minutes still unconscious right incredible in addition to that it also 
notifies his, in this case, it was his kids because you set like a contact to be notified in the event of some sort of fall. And what was really amazing about this is in the thread on Twitter where he sort of thanked Apple for producing this product that arguably saved his dad's life, all these other people chimed in and were saying, yeah, that happened to me. Oh yeah, my colleague at work fell off a ladder. It saved his life. And it was sort of like, oh, wow. there, was, there was like this flood of, of stories of how this IoT device, this wearable piece of technology had genuinely saved loads of people's lives. I suppose there's a lesson in here somewhere, which is probably when you buy an awesome piece of tech, maybe read the manual, take the time to set it up, <laughs> set it up. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel so, like I might own that. I wouldn't have set up that bit. Well, straw poll. I've asked a few people who have Apple Watches since this broke, and none of them had it set up. So, if you're listening to this and you've got an Apple Watch on your wrist, please do take the two minutes it takes now to set up the uh, emergency features on it, so that if you have a bad mountain biking fall or get run over by a car, whatever awful thing might happen. Your loved ones, too, will be happy to know that you are safe and well while you are still unconscious in the back of an ambulance. But if you do gymnastics regularly, just be careful to make sure the settings are appropriately tailored for your pastimes. Ambitious pastimes, indeed. So there we go. There's our first story, and it's made me feel warm inside. I feel warm about that, too. And the news keeps on coming, really. And this is a big one from Twitter because... We're in the early stages of an election in the US coming yep, up. Yep. We have an ele- election coming very soon in the UK. Oh, God. And there's yes. been a lot of controversy about political advertising on social media platforms. What have Twitter done? You know, we've covered the Cambridge Analytica stuff on this podcast and you know, all kinds of dystopia around social media and the, the impact platforms are having on democracy. Our last episode with Dan Harvey covered that extensively, as a, I'm sure you know if you've listened to that. I think it's fair to say he's pretty sceptical about some of the uh, some of the stuff that's going on with those organisations. He was keen uh, just to get free coffee from Facebook, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, there was some sort of coffee-related banter that was had. Do check out that episode. Anyway, since then, Jack Dorsey, founder CEO of Twitter, out of nowhere, and it was the ultimate bitch move, right? He released this news about half an hour before Facebook's quarterly earnings call, which meant that it was soon enough that the questions could be asked of Facebook on the call about this story, but so late that they had no time to prepare a suitable response. That's mean, isn't it? And there's no way that is an accident. So, I mean, I absolutely applaud that. I think that's fantastic gamesmanship from Jack. Anyway, what they've decided to do is to ban paid political advertising on Twitter globally, which is a really big deal because, I mean, that is genuinely refusing to cash some pretty large checks. Definitely, especially in the US. Yeah, and in in an election year as well, right? So it's it's a major coup. And I think signifies probably the second big tech company saying, you know, we're not okay with this anymore. Like, there's big tech and there's us, and we don't want to be part of that. I mean, Apple were the first to do it quite successfully last year and, you know, went on this whole kind of drive to extract themselves from the collective sort of association with big tech and twitter have made a really meaningful stand here and and look it's not as meaningful for them as it would be for a facebook or a google in terms of revenue but it's still significant commercially for them to do this and his position is basically look there's nothing wrong with organic reach like i'm totally fine with political candidates using twitter to get a message out. Absolutely. But what they shouldn't be able to do is pay to boost those messages inorganically into specific demographics and segments, which is, you know, is largely the debate around the way Facebook's been used in elections is around micro-targeting, using paid advertising to make sure certain people see certain messages. I think it's a really fascinating move, but I do think there's an element of could you not start applying this to other things that get advertised? Like, so at what point do you say 
fizzy drinks shouldn't be advertised or, or really virtually anything, you know, because actually I agree with what they've done, but I feel like it might sort of cause a sort of ripple of further change in what's appropriate to advertise and to who and, and that sort yeah. of view of how trust changes over time. Look, I think the consensus is that the advertising standards organisations in most Western countries have got a pretty good handle on what's okay to advertise and to whom, right? And I'm not sure that's always true, but broadly, you can't advertise alcohol outside schools, for example, you know, although I know there was that story that Brewdog this week who provocatively advertised their non-alcoholic beer outside of primary school and, was, and to be know, fair some things related to brexit have been upheld as not suitable in yeah, by our own advertising but, but, standards so look i appreciate there are fringe examples but broadly there are already pretty good regulations that cover those things what twitter have said is we don't feel that the regulators have suitably protected citizens against political advertising on our platform so we're going to take a stand ourselves and i think that is absolutely the right example to set. I'm fed up with these platform owners hiding behind regulation as the excuse. Like, well, we just create the platform. You know, we don't want to stand for anything. No, it's your product. It's your platform. It's not free speech to use Twitter. It's a product, right? And it's up to the people that make that product whether they choose to allow people to say certain things on it. And, you know, it all started really this debate with the deplatforming of Alex Jones and the whole Infowars thing, which Apple did first, and it all kind of got really controversial. Anyway, I feel like we're turning a news item into a very long talking point, but a really interesting one nonetheless. And, and well done, Jack. Shall I lighten things up a bit, Rob? Lighten things up, Jim. Do you remember a job that you didn't like so much? Have you ever had a job that you didn't like so much? Um, I've not had very many jobs, <laughs> to be honest. I've, I've had some shockers, right? Um, okay. I, I remember once I had a job which was the company sold financial software. My job was so lowly that I had to go phone companies and check the information in a sales spreadsheet was correct. But I wasn't allowed to try and do any of the selling. Right. I just had to update the spreadsheet. And then it got handed to a salesperson who would then phone back and try and sell them something. Sounds great. And in that job, I used to sit in the toilet for long periods, pretending, I guess, that I had some kind of toilet problems so that I didn't have to do as much of that job. And it was only 10 till 4, but those days felt like the longest of my life. Now, there's plenty of people in this world who love working in restaurants and customer service, yeah. but there's also plenty of people that do that to just earn some money, and they don't necessarily always want the hardest time when they're doing it. And not, not only that, there's plenty of people in this world who don't want to have a feeling that they're completely micromanaged in every moment of their day. Yeah. And this news story kind of makes me horrified, if I'm honest. I mean, it would have certainly brought an abrupt end to your lengthy poos you were having, uh, <laughs> inverted commas, in your previous sales job. It's when surveillance goes too far, right? Yeah, I think so. So this is our third news story, which is all about some technology that's being deployed in the Outback Steakhouse chain in America. So if you happen to be American or have spent any time in America, you will know this chain for its Bloomin' Onion, which is possibly the most outrageous thing to an English person because it's essentially... What's a, a Bloomin' Onion? It's a deep fried onion, basically. Oh, that is <laughs> Like a battered deep fried onion. Whole. Pretty much, yeah. But they cut it in such a way that it looks like a kind of rose and you can like peel bits of it off. I was going to say it's a delicacy. It's not a delicacy, but it's, it's something that's well known if you've lived in the States. I mean, we have onion rings, right? It's sort of like a dirty, massive onion ring. So anyway, Outback Steakhouse, known for its blooming onion, have been trialing this software which taps into the in-restaurant CCTV systems and monitors the work, I guess, that their servers, as they call them, which I guess is waiters and waitresses to you and I, are doing. And, and it tracks 
how many times they interact with the guest once the guest is at the table, how often they stand still, how long it takes for food to reach a table after it's been ordered, all kinds of different metrics that are automatically sort of bundled together and then sent to a line manager at the end of a shift. I mean, it's basically micromanaging by artificial intelligence. And on the face of it, you sort of think, oh, that seems quite sensible, you know, help improve operational efficiency, customer experience, increase revenue, blah, 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 blah. But actually, can you imagine that feeling of being fired by a computer system and, and being micromanaged by an algorithm like that? I think it's a really shocking insight into the future that it's we're, terrifying. we, we I mean, have coming down the track. We were at South by Southwest earlier this year, and I think someone raised the question, like, would you be employed by AI? If an AI could start its own business, Yeah, would you apply for the job? And it feels like this is the technology that goes before it's AI that opens the franchises of the Outback Steakhouse and it has high standards for what it expects from its servers yeah and I don't know why but for me it was a kind of callback do you remember that script that was written by an AI for a uh, advert for, for the, Olive uh, Garden. Yeah, yeah, that was brilliant. <laughs> Just sort of, I, I mean, we sort of assumed maybe that was faked, but it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, all the breadsticks and all that. And uh, anyway, yeah, so that's our third news story for the month. A shocking insight, perhaps, or maybe an exciting insight if you happen to be a mill owner into uh, the future of managing and micromanaging your staff. And talking of AI doing things that's just a little bit creepy that we maybe wouldn't want, we turn our attention to AI in China. What a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) And kind of, you know, a flavour of this episode. Yeah. Our friend and previous guest, Nigel William, is actually on a plane to China as we speak. I do hope they let him out and he comes back in one piece. So China, as many of you will know, listening to this, are progressive in their use of scoring systems, computer vision and artificial intelligence to uh, monitor their citizens and, and, and bring them to heel. So a recent change that's been announced is that as of December the 1st of this year, you will not be able to purchase a smartphone in China without having your face scanned for facial recognition. I mean, terrifying. Yeah, I think it is terrifying. I mean, my initial reaction was like, oh my God, this is awful. I dug a bit deeper and, and actually tying ID verification to phone purchases is not exactly unprecedented. Obviously, face is the new element. But for example, there's a rule in Germany that was imposed in 2016, which requires that domestic telecoms providers ask customers for ID cards or a foreign passport or some sort of formal ID when they buy a SIM card, right? So sort of doing away with burner phones, basically. Yeah. And I guess you can see logical reasons why you might want to do that. Yeah. French law has a similar sort of restriction around carriers collecting information on subscribers, including for prepaid services, again, trying to sort of get rid of burner phones. And and look, for sort of criminal activity and terrorism and all these dark things, mobile phones are obviously part of the mix and all of that. And so getting rid of that kind of anonymous mobile phone usage just about stacks up. But adding face recognition into it just feels like a step beyond that to me. It feels to me, though, like if you want to do anonymous communication... Yeah, there are ways to achieve that that work outside a smartphone, I suppose. There are. However, they're also a little bit more sophisticated and challenging, I would say. And, you know, don't be under any misconception about how actually a lot of those inverted commas anonymous systems, if you're talking about like state surveillance level, are not in any way anonymous, right? So I think that I think that's that's the point ultimately. But yeah, so they're perhaps obfuscated. Yeah, I can't say that word. Nor can I, it turns out. (laughs) Your turn. (laughs) <laughs> Obfus- <laughs> obfuscated boom there it is uh, yeah are we keeping that in i think we should um yeah and, and it so is friday, oh, it's, friday. I'm it's friday it's it's shortage yeah look i think 
you know, other things that go on in China, for example, I saw a, a thing recently. Obfuscated. <laughs> that's zero for four. Sorry, mate. Um, the, uh, there's, a, there's a billboard in China, uh, like a video billboard near roadsides. And if you jaywalk, it names and shames you on this billboard. So if, if the facial ID recognition thing sees you crossing the road illegally you get put on this massive board with your ID next to you, like your full name, your ID, and the picture of you crossing the road. This person has been docked 400 social points for being a terrible citizen. That is incredible. I would want that obfuscated if I (laughs) was in the area. (laughs) Yes! Okay, you can have that one. Right, there we go, listeners. That was the news. What a magical set of stories we've had for you this month. It was indeed the news. It was the news. It was the news. And coming up next, of course, what we've got is a story from Rob's CTO. Ah, yes. The wonderful world of CTO land. Well, as you know, you're probably sitting somewhere a little bit cold right now. Summer is drawing to a close. It is gone, isn't it, really? It is gone. It, it, we were sat by that pool for the compilation episode recording the intro. That feels like a long time ago oh now. God, like a lifetime ago. Yeah, I've got my big coat and my scarf on and, and, and winter is here. And so it got me thinking about what happened in the world of my CTO this summer. And while some of you will remember, it was uh, uncharacteristically warm this year in Europe. It was 42 degrees in Paris at, uh, at the peak of summer, which was the hottest on record. And London had similar heat waves. It did. So if you're a CTO, any kind of discomfort in your life demands a technical solution. Always. <laughs> Only. An immediate technical solution. I mean, we should ask what the technical solution to needing a cushion is. <laughs> I'm sure there is one. I'm sure there is one. And so this summer... Obviously, there was only one option for my CTO, which was to fit ducted air conditioning into his entire fairly standard English house. That's brilliant. (laughs) Which is, you know, the stuff normally preserved for American households and not something we see much of in this country. And so that was obviously not sufficiently technical. There had to be further incremental improvement made to the ducted air conditioning system. Come on, let's take it up a level. Okay. I don't just want aircon. I want aircon that does something I else. Want, I, I mean, I'm not sure what. What well, else could it be? Well, in this case, it was not burn his house down initially, which seems very sensible. So the yeah. first thing he set about doing was uh, programming his smoke alarms, which are IoT-based, of course, to uh, integrate with the ducted air conditioning control system so that if they detect smoke, the air conditioning shuts down and stops the spread of air through the house, thus quite literally fanning the flames which seems like the sort of thing those systems should have built into them anyway, but... It probably does. He probably just didn't read the manual and thought, I bet it doesn't have that, I'll build it. No, I expect it was 20% less good than the the version he built. And not content with, with stopping there, he also, and I, I like this because it's got some eco-creds, uh, you know, which is, is great, good, decided to set up a system that captures the air conditioning condensate water into a water butt, which uh, then feeds the irrigation system for watering the garden. Which is also automated. Which is also, of course, fully automated. I feel like this home would be living and succeeding many years after humans have left this earth. It's like a cockroach, right? It would survive Holocaust. (laughs) It's incredible. The, The beds would be moist with no foliage in them. The house would be cool and smoke free. That's the story from the CTO. And do you know what's up next, Rob? Oh, is it dad tech? It's a new feature. It's dad tech. It's dad tech. Ooh, (laughs) Jim's a dad now, and so he's buying new tech. 
What do you think of the jingle? I'm more partial to the jingle than to the segment, if I'm honest. So, yeah, congratulations, Jim. You are a dad. You've done very, very well. You have a beautiful and amazing daughter. And I was very pleased to meet her for the first time this weekend. But it does rather raise the question, what is the piece of technology this month that has made the biggest difference to you in your life as a new father? This month's been all about thermometers. Okay. Not exactly high tech. It's quite analog, isn't it? But well, no, I've got all kinds of thermometer. Okay. So it turns out that when you have a, a small child, people want you to have thermometers in every form. So a bathing thermometer, which is like a little duck that has a thermometer on it to see if the bath water is the correct temperature. Okay. We have a, a baby grow that came with a temperature indicator for a room, so you know which level of baby grow to put on for sleeping. Okay. And that's very portable. It's just on the back of some cardboard. We have a little lamp that glows different colors called a glow egg right it glows different colors based on how hot or cold the room is so it goes blue if it's too cold or red if it's too hot and we actually have a digital thermometer for checking the temperature which goes under the armpit of the child and after a few seconds goes either red amber or green so that's about what four or five thermometers have come into my life in the last few weeks they all seem to have some sort of color response color response they assume that you're an imbecile and that you can't <laughs> remember an appropriate temperature and it has to go green if it's okay or I see. that kind of thing okay so temperatures is my dad tech of the month delightful you're like uh, this, this feature doesn't need uh, to exist <laughs> i look forward to hearing next month what takes over oh it's dad tech <laughs> oh it's dad tech it's over now it's over good okay do you know what it is rob what is it Tim? it's something from the hype curve retro that's uh, <laughs> you're really smashing it with the jingles this month that was a good introduction to our segment for this season where we take a look at a previous gartner hype cycle this month we're looking at 2015 and we pick a couple of things that we think are, are interesting talking points and look at whether their prediction was right and, and kind of a brief analysis of how far those things have come right so the two we picked out from 2015 were gesture control first of all yes and we move on to talk about autonomous vehicles so starting with gesture control, so in the uh, 2015 Gartner Hype Cycle, this was on the slope of enlightenment, which is the penultimate phase before reaching the plateau of productivity. And the prediction was that in two to five years, which is kind of now, really, gesture control would be in mainstream adoption. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, so Google have just released in the last few months the Pixel 4, which is their latest smartphone, and it has this sort of revolutionary radar chip in it, which allows you to gesture to your phone to change track and do other things which to me seems like the most pointless and ridiculous feature in a smartphone in the last five years does that appeal to you i think you need these things to have a level of accuracy that is quite high and i think what's happened is in the period of time that's that, that we're talking about that natural language processing and text-to-speech and, yeah. and speech-to-text has improved so much that it's not generally a problem for me to say don't say it <laughs> don't make people smartphones do things jim some sort of voice command some sort of voice command, play me David Bowie right. or whatever it is. That's, that's easier than waving my hands in the air. Yeah. I mean, thinking about this segment for today's recording, I could not come up with one example of any kind of gesture control that I use day to day. I'm aware of one that's in quite common use in some 
cars because some boots or trunks have gesture control as part of them. That's probably the one I'm most familiar with. Oh, that's with. interesting. Where you like wave your foot under the bumper and it opens the boot. Exactly. Yeah, okay. That's that's genuinely gesture control. That was I the suppose. only one I could think of that sort of come into common use in the time period that we've sort of discussed. And, and when yeah. I say common use, there's a few cars that have that as a feature. So would we say that they were correct and the technology has arrived, but it's almost been superseded from a UX perspective, I guess, in a I way. I think so. I mean, I think, it, you know, there are, there are clearly use cases where that could be incredibly useful. Yeah. I just don't think it's going to be as ubiquitous as perhaps people once thought. Do you know what? I bet someone will write in and tell us that from an accessibility point of view, it's made a huge difference, right, for certain... For something. Yeah. yeah. So I acknowledge that. We always love a correction. Yeah. We'll take them on Twitter. Okay. So we, we'll give Gartner that one. We think they're probably about right in terms of their forecast there. And our second piece of technology that we've picked from the 2015 Gartner Hype Cycle is the autonomous vehicle, which was at the peak of inflated expectations at the very, very top and was forecast to kick in in five to ten years. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it feels to me like we talked a lot about autonomous vehicles in the earlier shows of Alexa Stop and... We haven't really talked about them a great deal recently. So we were in South by Southwest in 2018. We went to see the talk from Waymo. And then I guess there's been some controversy. There's some things that have happened out in Arizona. Yeah. And it's sort of gone a bit quiet. You know, funnily enough, there was a news story only this week, which was that the Uber self-driving car project, it transpired, didn't understand what jaywalking was. Like it had no logic built into it whatsoever for like the context of jaywalking other than obviously collision detection but it wasn't like something it had special programming for that there might be people crossing the road in every place and so you know especially in places where jaywalking isn't a criminal offense yeah indeed so five to ten years where does that get us to 2025 at the at the top end it probably feels just about achievable still to me but it's going to be tight i think for mainstream adoption yeah, I mean, I suppose driving around the country roads of the English countryside this weekend, yeah. it feels a long way off from those places. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, well, there we go. There's our throwback on the hype curve for this month. Let's reset the studio and bring in our guest. Looking forward to it. So joining us in the Alexa Stop studio, we've got Hayden Shaughnessy, author, consultant, journalist, keynote speaker, and many more things. How the devil are you? I'm pretty good. Apart from my dodgy Indian at lunchtime, I'm very good. Oh, is it not good? Jim, you missed this while you were fetching the water. So what our listeners won't know is that I often ask our guests what they had for lunch to get a level on the mic. And today's answer, which I think might be the funniest I've ever had, was that a curry from masala zone slander apologies in advance but apparently um well you said you love the food so much i do i i always go back even though it makes me pretty ill it makes you ill but you still Mm. go back i mean that's a good curry isn't it wow yeah got to Um, be is that just a general curry issue or is that a specific curry issue with this curry? i'd rather talk about technology (laughs) (laughs) okay we'll get it back to technology moving on from curry (laughs) tell us a little bit about yourself just to get things going so I started in technology when I was a journalist. I was a broadcast journalist. I went to work for the EU in Brussels looking after downstream satellite services. It's actually when the Sky satellite was first launched, you know, because Sky was given permission to broadcast across Europe at a time when every country only had their own national broadcasters, Sky had to give up a transponder to experimental services. So I managed those experimental services in Brussels. And one of the things we did was we had English language 
I don't think it was just English language, but language learning for migrant workers. So at that stage, there was a charitable consequence of having satellite TV, but I don't think it exists anymore. Just lots and lots of sport. From Sky. Mm. And a few other things too. But lots of, you know, fabulous TV that people are very happy paying for, I'm sure. You've then moved on into sort of technology consultancy and, and, and no, a couple of books. No, I've worked for about 10 years in think tanks in America. So I worked for Index. One was run by Don Tapscott as well. But in those days, a lot of the very large companies would give over some element of their strategic thinking to external think tanks. It happens less and less, actually. But we had about 70 of the top 500 American companies, and we would be trying to imagine their three- to five-year time horizon, not just in terms of technology. In fact, probably not really in terms of technology, but what the impact of technology was going to be. So we would be already in 2005 looking at what were business platforms going to do to the way businesses organize. And in American business, that tends to be the level at which senior people will want to operate. It's a much more intellectual climate, actually. At least it was a much more intellectual climate. So I did that for about 10 years, trying to look three to five years out for companies like Nike and Coca-Cola and the people who make Andrex toilet tissue. (laughs) Talking about Indians. Let's get into it a little bit. I guess, do you still scan three to five years into the future or do you look further or closer? I think what tends to happen is that if you follow the conventional business dialogue, then what you're looking at is a consensus forming mechanism that is generally seven to ten years behind what's actually happening. So follow something like the Harvard Business Review and over the last two years they've been writing about business platforms. Actually, you should have been writing about business platforms in 2005, even earlier. If you look at things like business ecosystems, that whole area of business ecosystems began as a public or business public discussion in about 1996. You hope it's going to come back. So what I'm doing is actually part of a tradition of thinking in business that sometimes extends quite a long way back. But the consensus mechanisms are only just catching up with it. So they're behind the times rather than me being ahead of the times. And so when you say ecosystem, what do you mean? Quite complex. You know, I think that, first of all, you have to look at what is the major concern at the moment. So right now, companies are starting to talk about should they be a business platform because they're looking at Apple, Facebook, and people even start to call Microsoft a business platform now. They look at these major companies and say they are major companies and they are successful because they are actually business platforms. I think that's totally untrue, by the way. But even if you take that at face value and say, is that what's really happened? Is there a new organizational form that applies to Microsoft as well as to Google and Facebook and the rest? The answer is no, I don't think there is. And I wouldn't call it a platform. I would say that there are ecosystems that function in a variety of different ways. And Take a really, really interesting ecosystem right now, which is in the electrification of transportation. So the infrastructure around electric vehicles and all that kind of stuff? All of that. And how extensive that is. You know, if you look at St. John's Wood here in London, how are you going to electrify somewhere as densely populated as St. John's Wood? So a lot of companies are coming together and working in new ways to do what I would call systemic ecosystem development or systemic ecosystem transformation. It's happening very slowly, and yet, at the same time, it's really interesting and it's very dynamic. 
On the other hand, there are ecosystems. There is the Microsoft value-added reseller ecosystem, which is very highly structured, is very educated by Microsoft, has to comply with a lot of conditions that Microsoft dictate and determine. That's a quite a different ecosystem than the electrification one. There is then a type of ecosystem around Alibaba in China and WeChat in China that is different again. Where we're at at the moment is we're talking about platforms. We were talking about them in 2008 when the iStore came along. There was an explosion of business platform startups or transformations in 2010, 2011, 2012. It kind of died off. The consensus has now caught up that these were important. But I think times have moved on and the ecosystem is where it's really at. We'll come back to talking about some of those examples in more detail because I think it's a really interesting thing to explore. But the question I'm dying to ask, which maybe I should wait till the end, but I'm just going to ask it now anyway, is so what's the thing that people aren't thinking about now that they should be, right? So there's kind of short-termist thinking ultimately. People aren't planning far enough ahead. Do you personally have a theory today about what that next thing might be in, say, seven years' time that businesses are missing now that they should be thinking about? Well, well I think that the... The problem for Western organizations is that we are governed by laws that prevent cartels, you know, antitrust legislation, those types of things. If you look at the way China is evolving its ecosystems, it is very antitrust, it's very cartel-like. There are grave dangers with cartels, that's how we got Nazism in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s. There are very good reasons to have an antitrust environment. But when you've got a country with 1.4 billion people allowing that kind of corporate form... With a more flexible regulatory environment, shall we say? Uh, yeah, yeah. With, a more, with, a, with an open regulatory environment. I think there are a lot of consequences of that. You know, one consequence we're seeing is American protectionism. It really has to protect its economy. I, I know it seemed to reflect badly on Trump, but I think that the reality is that you have an economy in China which has a middle class somewhere near five or six times that of America, a middle class that's growing, a middle class in America that's in decline. So you've got this kind of um, global economic problem that isn't going away. We have to sort of tolerate cartel development in Europe and America. We actually have to see these companies like Facebook. You can break Facebook up, but you've got to start replacing that with organizations that are as big and powerful as governments one way or another, because that's what's going to come at us from outside. Because ultimately we live in a globalist economy. And so if you're going to allow participants from countries that have those more open regulatory environments in the same market as the more restricted ones, you would create an uncompetitive scenario, I guess, is what you're I saying. I think so. Yeah. And I, I think that the ramifications of it are going to be political. They are right now, but I mm-hmm. think they're going to become more deeply political. But I think the economic ramifications are things like if you are an Alibaba or a WeChat or any of the... Chinese ecosystems, you have the opportunity to drive the price of various services down to zero. And I think that that's the major problem that we're going to face. I think we're beginning to see it. If you look at somebody like um, the Chinese insurers, I think it's Zhangao or Zingao, they are issuing insurance policies at $1.49. Now, we're not capable of issuing insurance policies at that level because our cost base won't tolerate it. Yeah. But we are going to have to start thinking that way. How do we get the price, certainly of digital products, down by about 90% of their current cost? I think that's the critical problem for everybody this side of 
Russia, as it were. <laughs> and we've talked a lot about things becoming marginal cost. We've tended to look at it in the positive sense previously, how that um, it might democratise access to education as, as devices and access yeah. to... High-speed internet connectivity, things like that. But this is perhaps a slightly sort of darker side of it. How long do you think this will be playing out over? I think what's going to be interesting is to see what level of uptake there is in Facebook's currency and whether or not Ripple in the background can start coming to the foreground as a major new financial instrument. So there are ways in which you can see that the, the seeds of something radical happening in this part of the world. But I think it's playing out, and I think that's the problem. When people look at the platform economy right now, they're trying to apply that label to so many different instances of organizational form, instead of thinking, actually, our real problem, and often when people talk about, just to complete that thought, when people talk about the platform economy, they're talking about two-sided markets and pricing within two-sided markets and where monopoly starts to distort that pricing mechanism or the pricing mechanisms, when actually we already have a pricing problem and we need to address it. We really need to have a very serious cost problem when compared to Chinese ecosystems. And I think it's playing out now. So Because, oh God, so many questions, so much to talk about. Quickly, addendum, so Facebook's currency is called Libra, it's unlaunched, it's something that they're trying to launch. If you're listening and you're wondering, well, Facebook's got a currency, they don't yet, but they're trying really hard, they're having regulatory challenges, but they seem pretty convinced they're going to get there. I had a rumour this week that Mark Carney's going to go and work for Libra after he leaves the Bank of England, which may or may not be true, but I heard it from someone who works for a major financial reporting organisation, so you never know. I'd really like to jump in on that one as well, because, of course, they already have recruited senior politicians here. And a book I wrote about three years ago called Platform Disruption Wave, I was making that prediction that these companies will become more powerful than governments. Yeah. So they're like nation-states, aren't they? They are nation-states, and they're going that way. They become more and more so. Yeah. Yeah. And on our last episode of this very podcast, we interviewed someone about some of the really terrible impact that some of those organizations are having for example all of the child targeting with youtube and that's a tangent right but we absolutely agree with that perspective in this room and the other comment you made was about ripple so if you're wondering well okay facebook's currency is libra i know what that is well what's ripple ripple is a private organization that have been flirting around for some time with a blockchain implementation which they're trying to create as a sort of clearing asset slash currency and you know it's sort of in the mix with bitcoin and ethereum and all these other things that may or may not catch on Let's talk briefly about the social role of organizations going forward, because um, two years ago, I think it was 2016, actually, Alibaba funded the training of one million young entrepreneurs in the Chinese hinterland. Okay. And I think that's the other side of the Chinese cartel development, that they have a social role and a social purpose that they take seriously. So could you envision... Google training one million people in how to develop new businesses, or could Facebook do that? They have to start doing that. Well, are we just too far into our capitalist approach to life to do that, for a company to take that sort of level of social responsibility? It feels like companies are certainly moving towards a sort of more conscious social role in society in the West, but very, very slowly. I think it depends on who you're looking at, really. I was going to say, oh, yeah. I think we're talking about purpose, but I don't see it happening. I think there's a logic to what Alibaba was doing. In order to continue to fuel its growth, it has to have more entrepreneurs. So there's a logic to being that socially conscious and that uh, invested in economic development. But it comes back to the point we were also making, that these are nation states within nation states. Alibaba is an economic development agency. So bringing it back to the West then, what should we do here? 
I think that the first base with these things is to get the right conversation going. And it's very difficult to be prescriptive in the West. I happen to think that where America's going with tariff protection is not a bad thing. And I know that everybody's saying it's totally the wrong thing to do. Oh, look, the way maybe it's being done is the thing everyone objects to. But I think the principle is what you're saying maybe is, is reasonable, actually. I think for a period of time. Shouting about it on Twitter might not quite be the most elegant execution not of it. Not very presidential. <laughs> and there's perhaps a but limited amount of tools to use and to, to play with, and perhaps that's right. one of them. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, You've got to do something, do this, give yourself time to breathe and, and think about it and get the right conversation going. But as I said, I think that the consensus mechanisms in the intellectual development of Western business are just lagging at the moment. Or there have been for the past 20 years. Is there any hope that there would be another consensus forming mechanism? You know, the Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management, these types of institutions are all powerful. But unfortunately, they're 10 years behind the time. And you mentioned earlier, right at the top of the interview, that you felt that organizations in the States particularly, I think you said, aren't turning to third-party think tanks anymore in the way that which they used to. Do you think that's a positive change or is that perhaps furthering the problem? I think they're turning to the big four consultancies and that is a problem if you look at what any large organization needs right now you cannot draw on the big four consultancies as your exemplary execution mode so i think there was a time when what the big four gave you was that they went into so many organizations that they did get something like big data pretty quickly they were able to rinse and repeat four or five times and by time six you've got a company that's accomplished in big data sure therefore you can sell it but actually organizations have to be much more situational and there aren't that many models that you can apply to the circumstances that companies face therefore what the big four do is just not applicable now they go and they try and get models like spotify and try and impose those models but uberization of yeah the uberization spotification (laughs) but those things don't work so you know we had the think tanks, we now have the big four, and neither of these, I think actually think tanks would work, but the big four are not working. And so you, you say think tanks might work or could work, but do you think there's something else that can help organisations develop themselves for the future? Well, I do come back to the point that you've got to have the right debates. And if you look at the debate around the platform economy, it's an anti-trust debate. Its origins are in the antitrust movement and so a lot of the work that's gone on there has been how do we stop google and literally how do we stop google yeah. in terms of how the europeans have approached that yeah. problem but even the american approach to it is about this two-sided market thing and it's just a total nonsense there are very few platforms that are actually two-sided markets or but another way there are very few platforms that are novel and impactful enough that you need to worry about them you need to worry about organizations like Alibaba, which are so extensive, have so many different activities going on, that they are, I think, representative of an entirely new kind of organization. We know why, I think, talking here, but let's expand on that a little bit for people listening to this. So why do you think they're so different? What is it they're doing that's progressive and and different? Well, I didn't use the word progressive necessarily, but I think that if if you look at the Alibaba ecosystem is unique. Actually, just as an aside, last year before Apple, and then I don't know, was it Google or Facebook that became the first 
companies to be valued at one trillion. I think Alibaba is valued at somewhere around four or five hundred million. I know that's an absolute joke. You know, the the markets are supposed to be represent future value. Yeah. If you look at Alibaba's future value, it's in the trillions and way ahead of anything that Apple and Facebook and Google are doing. If you look at their businesses, you know, they are in logistics, they're in finance, they're a bank, they register as a bank, they have a payments infrastructure, they have a payment service. They've got cloud services, even own a football team. They've got insurance. They've got insurance technology. They've got ticketing. They've got driverless car project. They've got ride hailing, Didi, the Chinese equivalent of Uber. You've just got to start thinking about the extensive nature of that ecosystem, how powerful it's going to be as Chinese people start traveling around the world more and doing business around the world more. So it's like nothing we've ever seen. Perhaps you could say the Korean Chabal, someone like a Samsung that's into anything from mining to screens, possibly. But those are very different businesses to be in. And as we were talking before we started to record, you know, if you go into the Alibaba ecosystem as a customer, you need never come out. You can go and do your grocery shopping. You can go into clothes shops. You can get your tickets to fly to America. You can take them to the airport. You can get food delivered to your house. There's nothing that you need to do outside that ecosystem. And to be honest, you're still in the ecosystem when you think you're not in it because loads of other products and services use some of the underlying payment technology or or some element of the other technology. So the data that you're delivering into that organization when you're not explicitly using a product or service they Mm. own directly is still happening. Yeah, actually, you could take it one step further that... Amazon cannot survive without the Alibaba ecosystem because a large proportion of the products sold on Amazon are sourced out of Alibaba. Hmm, That's a really interesting point. I mean, I was sitting here thinking the the closest kind of true ecosystem monopoly that we have is Amazon's. And I think they're increasingly taking bites out of all kinds of other areas. But by comparison, it's much less broad. Yeah, it's much less broad. And that's why we need to have the right debate because we are having debates like... Can we stop Google? How can we disrupt Facebook? How can we not just disrupt Facebook? How can we break Facebook up? Yeah. Is Amazon too big? These are the wrong questions, really. It's how can we facilitate ecosystem growth on the scale of a Chinese ecosystem without damaging our democracies any more than they're being damaged right now? We've had quite a lot of conversations on this podcast about the privacy issues around Facebook. It was a, we talked about it on the last episode, actually, because they're running privacy cafes in London at the moment so that you can go and have a free cup of coffee and talk about your privacy issues with the Facebook team. Can't imagine Alibaba wasting their time with privacy cafes, can you? I suppose, what's the risk if we don't address our lack of competitiveness with someone like Alibaba? Well, I think you see it with somebody like Huawei, that they've been prevented from expanding their business into the United States. Yeah. And I'm not sure that you can do that with some of the softer digital services. So if uh, Zongao wanted to, I think Zongao or Zongan, I can't remember, if they wanted to expand their insurance business into Europe or into the United States, is there anything to stop that? If you look at the approach to service provision as well, if I book to go to America or if I book to go to Europe, I think my flight insurance would tend to be in the region of in Europe $30, $40, America $70, $80. If I'm getting that for $1.50, I'm going to buy it. Of course. Uh, and so they are classic disruptors in that sense, that they're going to come into the market with something that's so cost tolerant 
that you're going to get many more customers much more quickly. So I think anything around that, we are very vulnerable already. It's a question of time. When do they want to expand those businesses? Can they underwrite it properly? You know, maybe there's some issues around claims management that they're looking at, but I don't imagine that they're insuperable problems. Where will we be going with this part of the conversation? Well, it was, um, the question was like, what, what damage could it have? And I think, what, oh, right. I think, I think yeah. what you're getting at is that through cost competition alone, price point, yeah. you know, yeah. these guys might just wipe out huge chunks of the incumbent market and then i suppose as a consumer you've got to ask well is that bad thing right i mean you know arguably the negative side of that is people might lose their jobs and you know it might impact on our more localized economies in countries where we've relied upon i don't know the insurance industry and the local market or whatever but isn't that sort of the dream of a globalized economy anyway that the most efficient product or service wins out and that People slowly, unfortunately, have to stop doing the thing that used to be efficient in the country they live in and start doing the new thing. So, you know, maybe there isn't an insurance industry in the UK anymore, and maybe that's just how it is. But the, obviously, the change is always painful, but the end result can actually be a positive thing, I, I like to think. So, I don't know. It's well, we, ha- we haven't been through those things, really, since the Japanese entered the European market in the 1980s. Right. I think that that really radical change, I don't know if, well, you're probably too young to remember it, but we were queuing up to speak to the Japanese trade representatives because the only way to grow your business was to go cap in hand to them. That was when Sony started to dominate in electronics. Yeah, I think those things can happen again. They probably will happen again. Fascinating to hear about about Sony and those times. And yeah, I was born in the mid-80s, so I probably don't remember that too well. But more generally, so you know, what other challenges are there that you think Western businesses might face as a result of that price competition and maybe the changing landscape of what is commercially viable, right, within mm. someone's own country? Yeah. About three years ago, the German logistics industry, not just the German industry, I think the Danes as well, I think Maersk were involved in this. There was a recognition that Alibaba's logistics infrastructure coupled to its financial infrastructure and its product distribution was going to threaten Deutsche Post DHL as well as the insurance and the financial services that go around that. Globally, you mean? Uh, well, DHL's a global company, yes. Okay. So, it's, so it's, it was going to have a big enough impact that it was going to threaten the whole business? They still believe it's going to threaten their business, but right. basically what they're trying to do is to emulate it. So certainly in Germany right now, they're trying to figure out, can they do what Alibaba's done? And I think where the friction comes in sometimes, there was a story recently about, I think it's UPS, isn't it, in the States. UPS recently basically fired Amazon as a client, which is a crazy thing to do, right? Most people would say, but I saw a quote which was that UPS got fed up with sharpening the executioner's scythe, which is sort of, I mean, it's right, isn't it? Like, ultimately, you're contributing to a business that is one day either going to buy you or kill you. Mm. And... I suppose, kind of like we were saying before, maybe the end result is positive once everyone's gone through all the difficulty and then the new status quo emerges. But the transition is is quite challenging, I think, for the people involved. So much of this is about scale, really. Because how many of us have done a business partnership at some point in our career of running businesses or being involved in partnerships where part of the reason we did the partnership was to learn something from the partner so that we could probably do it ourselves at a later point in time? right quite possibly just at a small level that's sort of insignificant but a lot of this conversation is just about the sheer scale of the countries involved and Mm. the size of the businesses involved yeah and um if you look two weeks ago mit platform summit and they invited ceo barclays over 
because Barclays now claim to be a platform business, highly unlikely, but you know, it's that kind of thing. We all want to be on the latest train, whatever's leaving the station. But Barclays referred to 9 million customers. I think they probably have 20 million. I think RBS has about 18 million, something along those lines. They need 200 million, 300 million, 400 million. That need that if they're going to function globally. The problem for them, and I actually don't think that needs to be uh, clients that they sell a suite of products to. It can be much more slimline product range. But the problem for them is that they've all retracted from global operations and the pain they've been going through for the past 10 years, since 2008, 2009, is to retract from Asia. You know, If you look at RBS in 2008, it was becoming a global company. Here we have a government that's been forcing them to retract from scale. Same with Barclays, they've had to pull their wings in and HSBC to a certain degree. So actually the impetus in important parts of our economy has been to scale down when they really need to scale up. And so do you think governments will act to protect more over the next decade? I think most governments, their heads are in 1945-46. The heads are in Keynesian economics with a bit of Milton Friedman thrown in 1982-83 sort of thing. So, yeah, we have this mixed economy that we're trying to disrupt through privatisation. They just have no idea how the economy has changed in the past 15 years. All I can really think about at the moment is actually how our government is completely focused on uh, the Brexit issue, which given that you... Descaling. <laughs> yeah, descaling. Yeah, bringing it back it's in. true. And you used to work for the EU, so I'm sure you have some interesting experiences from that time but what will be the bump at the bottom that makes us take up a different strategy these politicians believe that there are these are the trade deals to be done that i suppose if you're boris johnson you think that america's going to sign up so that you've got scale you can replace the eu and you've got scale again straight away it makes no sense to me economically what they're doing yeah but i think that the real problem is that they don't understand the modern economy but I don't think many economists understand the modern economy because this breaks all the rules of economic theory, really, and all the kind of regulations that we've tried to put around economic activity. It even affects business strategy. So I remember writing something in Forbes about five years ago where I said that the problem that most Western businesses face is that they're focused on a core competency. So you continue to avoid adjacent moves in your business. You'll do very soft adjacencies, like add a product line as you push stuff into the supermarkets. But real radical adjacencies that move you out of your business was taboo because we're all taught, or these guys were educated through the American business schools. It's the core competency of the firm. So they're all core competency-minded. Chinese companies do not give a fig about core competency. They get into whatever business is going to make them money and they do all that cross-fertilization because it makes them more money. So I think it's even at the level of business theory, Western managers are going to have to relearn, really relearn the fundamentals. And I suppose you were talking uh, also earlier, before we came in to record, about um, the sheer scale of Chinese factories' ability to make curved screens, for example. Yeah, I, I think that in that particular case, that if, if anybody's been following this technology, if you look at the OLED screen, the organic light emitting diode, the benefit of that technology is that you don't need a backlight, therefore you don't need a rigid form. What you do need is to still be able to encapsulate all the organic compounds. So, so actually bending the frame hasn't been that easy. Interestingly enough, the OLED screen was invented by Kodak 
should have saved Kodak's bacon in the 1980s. I didn't know that. Yep, yep. All the early patents were Kodak's. They just got their licensing model wrong. Samsung hired in, I think, something like 20 scientists from the Russian Academy of Science once the wall came down, got those into uh, their factories, and they taught the Samsung uh, Korean workforce how to innovate around OLED, basically. And that progressed the technology to the point where it could go into a mobile phone. But all the time, the promise of OLED has been bendable and flexible. And the Chinese technologists have now cracked the bendable, flexible problem. And there are five factories waiting to go into production, have been waiting for a couple of years now. And they're funded by different regional development corporations or development agencies around China. So what you're going to see, I think, is kind of an interesting symbol of what change we're going through. The flat screen ideas were German originally, but American invention in, in organic, organic light emission diodes passing to Korea allows the Koreans to outcompete the Japanese on flat screen technology. That technology migrates to Korea. It's now, as it were, in the waiting room before it goes over to China. And I think China will be the dominant figure in screen technology. But I think that'll be a recurrent theme, you know, that technologies that need scale and these things need scale if you're going to create the clean rooms to encapsulate organic compounds a bit like making silicon yeah. you need a lot of scale it wouldn't surprise me if samsung spent 10 billion on the development of OLED. so again you need scale for that reason all those advantages are now passing to china and needs a really interesting choice of words there because you don't need scale you need scale to make it really cost effective to sell the product right you need scale to compete with somebody who has more scale than you. And that's what we're coming back to again, isn't it? Is this scale question. And it's like, okay, I get that if they had to make them for 10 million pounds per screen, it wouldn't be viable. But equally, they probably could sell them for three times the cost. And if no one else could make them for less, then people would still buy them. It's interesting, isn't it? How obviously there's a price point, right? There's you know price sensitivity and all that stuff, price elasticity. But basically, what we're saying is that the thing that really, coming back to it again, the thing that really gives China this edge is scale in yeah. one way or another, right? Yeah. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, so technology in the waiting room is a really nice way of putting it. But basically, most things, <laughs> one way or another, are somewhere in that queue, aren't they? And unless something pretty major changes in the future, slowly but surely, from insurance to flat screens to whatever else you can dream up it's all going to start to gravitate towards this more open regulatory environment these huge monolithic companies with this unbelievable scale and these sort of hugely tightly integrated ecosystems and we haven't even got into data i mean we touched on it very briefly but data is the new world as everyone keeps saying and there's a reason for that which is because it's the fuel of machine learning machine learning creates all of this amazing competitive advantage and personalization and these companies that have this incredibly broad set of services as you so rightly said you know not worried about the core mission or the core product but actually saying you know what we're going to sell flowers and we're going to sell shoes why not right they end up with this incredible data set which they can use to map intent and intent for me is the thing no one's really talking about right now as much as they should be because over the last say 20 years of the internet and the kind of technology evolution there's really one company globally that's had the monopoly on intent, in my opinion, which is Google. And Amazon over the, and Facebook in, okay, the last maybe decade or five years have started to nibble away at that a little bit. And Amazon certainly kind of owned the railroad and the trains a bit now. And they're starting to see that intent and kind of close the loop. And Facebook too, particularly if they launch Libra, might take another step into that. But it, again, it pales into insignificance in terms of what these much broader ecosystems offer. So 
I don't know. That's a bit of a monologue, but that's my great fear of anti-competition for us is is the data challenging question. I'm just picturing the waiting room. <laughs> the and, uh, waiting room what, for the technologies. What, 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 who's in what part of the queue and then who needs the toilet uh, and, uh, and, and, and sort of loses their place in the queue. One of the things we do on this podcast is look at the hype curve quite regularly. I feel like the hype curve is some sort of like version of the queue. Maybe that's a new segment is the, the technology waiting room. This has been fascinating. We could keep going for hours. We've probably got time for like one more segment. What haven't we covered? What else would you like to discuss? I'm interested to know what this means for us. In the UK, what does China's potential dominance of so many things actually mean for us on a sort of very practical level? It's kind of difficult to render it down to a practical level before you have a debate about how we should respond or what the response is going to be. And it's my I, job around here to dumb things down. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but I, I do think, going back to the earlier point, we're not even having the debate. So it's not being worked out through any of the political mechanisms that are available. In terms of where do economies go when they're faced with that kind of problem, I think what experiences do people really, really want and what experiences will people pay for? I think that the biggest innovation of the past 10 years has been Airbnb's experiences. So now you've got a platform which will sell something as simple and personal as an everyday experience. For those that don't know that particular product line, it is, I went to Paris and I learned how to cook from a chef in Paris on her day off. There are people that can go and learn how to run with a Kenyan runner in Nairobi or wherever, Nanuki. I was in uh, Reykjavik weekend before last and there was a guy that would just take you around the bars of Reykjavik but make sure you got into all the good bars. He was available every night of the week and sometimes it would just be you and him and sometimes it'd be a group of 10 of you. Here's a really, really interesting insight into that project though. Maybe five years before, there were younger people inside Disney saying Disney has to get out of the park and Disney needs to make its experiences accessible to people all over the place, in in urban areas, for example. Maybe that's not having Mickey bouncing around High Street, but something of the Disney magic has to be out there. And I find it utterly fascinating that nobody in Disney thought about doing that. And now they've been usurped because the magical experiences are there being delivered by people like us to people like us. So I think there is a version of the future economy which is very much about how we manage a whole range of things ourselves. And I did do a little advert earlier on before we started talking about my flower project, you know, which is I think that global politics is going to become a very personal thing. I would like to support flower growers in Kenya, and I think I can do that through mobile phone technology at much lower cost than any charity could possibly serve the Kenyan or, or Ugandan economy. So I think even there, where you move to, if you're sensible, is to say, what does the technology do to actually empower every one of us and what does every one of us want to do differently amazing for me there's just this thought of where on earth is on-demand mickey mouse (laughs) (laughs) where's my yeah where's my on my iphone where's my (laughs) self-service mickey mouse guy i can get red leicester in under two hours from amazon prime why can't i have mickey mouse here when i want to to feed it to yeah absolutely fascinating conversation this is a topic and well a theme of topics that i would happily talk about for days on end and and you know no doubt we'll continue to talk about after this interview but thank you so much for your time it's been really welcome a real pleasure from 
one of the best lunch stories I've heard to some of the most interesting debate about our future that I think we'll ever have. And I'm sure we'll be talking about these themes many more times over the coming months. So thanks again. Cool. Thank you. Thanks.